Father in heaven, you are great, you are awesome. And we thank you for this uh, beautiful day in which to assemble and uh, hear your word and worship you and fellowship. And we pray, Lord, that you, your word would not return void, that somehow I can communicate how important it is to trust you and to have genuine conviction, faith, and to honor you and to pass it on. Lord, we give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat and welcome to Lion and Lamb. And uh, if you're not a regular here, uh, I just, I can barely get one message a month. And so that's what I try to do. Uh, and uh, so uh, for those of you who haven't been around or if you missed previous messages back in January, uh, I started a new series called Head to Heart about passing on genuine faith to succeeding generations. Uh, and and uh, at that time, we started with a situation report about the culture's influence over many of the teens within, this, within the church uh, as viewed through a guy named Josh McDowell about 20 years ago. And he used, he summarized certain surveys uh, of teens who were in church at the turn of the, of the millennium. And he concluded at that time that teens, generally speaking, said they go to church or go to youth group because it works for them. It was true for them at the time. Not necessarily because they believed that it was, they were called to by God's word and that God's word was absolute truth. And so Josh and we pointed out that, you know, that state of affairs does not bode well for the future. Again, 20 years ago. We started with Deuteronomy 6, where, uh, which Jesus calls in the New Testament the first or greatest commandment, to love your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And we asked rhetorically, is that commandment worth passing on to the hearts of the succeeding generation. Last month, uh, we examined the natural tendency, not the law, but the natural tendency of genuine faith to dissipate as it passes through generations. Besides numerous Old Testament examples, Paul calls this going from mature to infant to a natural man or woman. Uh, Jesus in Revelation 3 you know, puts it in terms of being hot, being lukewarm, or cold. We used, uh, through uh, Bruce Wilkinson's work, the analogy of a first, second, and third chair to illustrate, illustrate these three general positions in life, of a first chair being one who is saved and committed the second chair being one who was saved but compromised, and the third chair being one who is not saved and conflicted. Uh, when a young person grows up in a second chair, second-hand faith home, he or she will eventually perceive the compromise and will likely see it as an empty, if not hypocritical, faith. 
And we touched upon the importance of the example of parents and grandparents and anyone to whom the young look up to as ambassadors for Christ. And we said that our goal was to be both a faithful and an effective witness to the young. And that certainly means knowing God's word, which means spending time in it, read your Bible, so that we have essentials to pass on. You cannot give what you do not have. Uh, and we referred uh, to 1 Peter 3, which exhorts us to always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. So, uh, even though being a faithful witness is essential, we raise the possibility that it may not be sufficient to be an effective witness in our culture today. To be effective, we often will need genuine relationships, whether within or without our families. Because 1 Peter 3.15 ends with the balancing caution to defend the faith always with gentleness and respect. And that's where we left off last month. So today we want to move on to the basic question of what does it mean to have genuine conviction, to be an imperfect yet sold out occupier of the first chair. That's what we're hoping to do today. So if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to John 17. And this is a, a passage that kind of sums up maybe this whole message uh, in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. This is Jesus' prayer to his Father. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty famous prayer. But within that, starting in first, or John 17, verse 13, he says, Now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, my disciples, may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Then it's a very important phrase. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth truth. So this prayer of Jesus to his Father is for us, that we might have his joy in the midst of a world that opposes Christ, God's Word, and his followers. And he asked that we be sanctified in the truth. To sanctify means to set apart. The dynamic behind sanctification is truth, the truth that comes from God's Word, read, heard, understood, and applied in real life. Charles Spurgeon said this, that, quote, the more truth you believe, the more sanctified you will be. The operation of truth upon the mind is to separate a man from the world unto the service of God. Now, to me that sounds a lot like the development of conviction. Just as the Father sent the Son into the world, Jesus sends us into the world to live out our convictions that we discern and adopt from his word. 
And the Bible gives us lots of examples of true conviction. Joseph re resisted the seduction of Potiphar's wife because he was convicted that giving in, quote, would be a great sin against God. Daniel refused to bow down to uh, the Babylonian culture and its king only. Uh, and Peter and John decided that they would obey God rather than man in the face of persecution. If you read Hebrews 11, it has a hall of faith there, and it recounts how many saints of the past were tortured, suffered mocking and floggings, chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned, some sawn in two, others killed by the sword. Many went about in animal skins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering in the deserts and mountains and in caves and dens, all because of their conviction. Now, teaching those stories, those accounts to young children is important. It's essential. Teaching them to believe right things is likewise essential. But is it enough? Is it sufficient to pass on genuine faith? Now, I want to make a, a, a caveat here. Uh, none of us can objectively know that another is saved. We may hear the words, but that's not our call. Okay, uh, John tells us in his first epistle that it will become evident to others whether one is of the Lord or of the devil, but one can only be assured of and can know of one's own salvation. And even then, one can be deceived about salvation because Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be some who will be surprised to find out that they're not saved. They're actually workers of iniquity on the day of judgment. So the lesson from that is, please be sure for yourself. That's the best thing you can do. Uh, now, of course, all believing parents want their children, and all the truly saved want others to be saved as well. And that's what the Bible says is God's desire that all men should be saved. And that should be our motivation, to have a witness to others. So where does that lead us in terms of encouragement and action uh, as believers? Well, uh, there have been revivals over the ages. Uh, and one of the more recent ones is uh, the Jesus movement of the 1970s. And that diverted or even rescued many of my generation from very difficult times of Social change, upheaval, new temptations, that's when the sexual revolution occurred, and addictions, of course, drugs were, were rampant at that time. That's actually the environment in which I came to Christ. I had grown up in the church, but it wasn't until I was in college and because of the, all the evangelists coming on campus, I had one in my room witnessing to my friend and it finally made sense. So I'm a product of the Jesus movement in some respect. Uh, however, at that same time, as we've mentioned in a past message, the seeds of this new philosophy called postmodernism were being sown at that time. And postmodernism simply says, there is no objective truth. All truth is determined and discerned through the culture. Uh, and of course, the teens of the Jesus movement did not believe there was no truth but they were subtly influenced by the culture around them nonetheless. They had their kids in the 80s generally, and when those church kids became teens, even they did not adopt 
just hook, line, and sinker, the, the, the notion that there is no truth. However, what Josh McDowell found was that for many, it was their truth, a truth that worked for them at that time, not the objective, absolute, and eternal truth of God. So McDowell exhorted parents 20 years ago to equip their children, grandchildren, and others to be sold out for Christ, to be 21st century gladiators who would not fold in an antagonistic, even persecuting culture. Just as some in the Jesus movement came, on, came in on emotional highs only to crash and burn spiritually, many church kids of the next generation that we just referred to were attracted to Christianity through an exciting youth group or an emotional church camp experience. When they saw their friends go forward, they wanted to follow because it felt so good at the time. Perhaps they heard that the Christian life is love, joy, and peace, period. Perhaps they did not hear how much they needed Christ because of their very real sin and that new life in Christ means a changed life. So McDowell asked the question, what happens when something more exciting and emotionally stimulating comes along? Or what happens when their life does not change much and they're challenged morally by the world? Or what happens when they do not feel the love, joy, and peace of God because of personal hardship or tragedy in their own lives? McDowell concluded that the studies showed that their emotions and their subjective beliefs would not often be strong enough to lead them to right choices. However, looking at today, the society that teens are traveling through is far worse. Added on top of the confusion and lack of conviction Technology accelerates reaction, deception, division, and intimidation. Small insensitivities can snowball into hate speech. Norms of biblical marriage and even gender are questioned, if not scorned. Postmodernism rejects not just biblical truth, but even the empirical measurable facts of science. It is essentially a religion in its own right. Now, here in the conservative center of the country, the postmodern gods of self-determination and personal autonomy, in other words, be and do with yourself whatever you want, has been enshrined in our Constitution by our state Supreme Court. And it's not just truth. Mere words are being censored and violent backlash intimidates people from taking any kind of a stand or even saying anything. And the young see this, so they just simply hunker down in isolation with their smartphones and absorb whatever comes in through the sages of cyberspace. Now, I'd never looked up the definition of cyberspace, so I did. And Wikipedia says, Define cyberspace as, quote, the online world as a world apart, as distinct from everyday reality. Now that's insightful. Our young people 
if they're going to hold their belief, mental assent, knowing the right answers, is not sufficient. In short, that kind of belief is not enough. Sitting in church is not enough. McDowell told us that the youth of 20 years ago believed as true, genuine, and real only that which they accepted for themselves subjectively, not what is universally true by God's word. And I would suggest that 20 years later, right now, our kids can change their truth on a whim because reality is determined and defined by the culture, and that culture is an ever-changing phenomenon through 24-7 social media, also known as an alternate reality. Again, we're speaking generally here. This is what's happening right now. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. Remember that? This is just Romans 1 repeated, okay? Kids in many of the churches today have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have served and worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, faith is not a synonym for conviction, but the two are closely aligned, they're related. In order to hold a belief strongly, have a conviction, one must of course have faith in something, whether God, law, morality, or principle. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods, for moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing, Christianity, looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come Anyway, that is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods, quote, where to, give up, where to get off, unquote, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather or the state of its, in, of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. For belief to stick, it must be beyond personal belief, preference, or subjective feeling. Uh, in general, what we're talking about here is conviction is being so completely convinced that something is absolutely true that you stick with it no matter what. Daniel exhibited this uh, and gave him strength to refuse, bowing down to the king. His Hebrew friends had this same resolve when they went into the fiery furnace. Paul was beaten, stoned, imprisoned, left for dead, and eventually beheaded for his conviction. And he said in Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. In 2 Timothy 1, he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. I think one of the best proofs of the resurrection is that the disciples claim to have seen, touched, and spoken to the risen Christ. And they went to their death because of that conviction. 
Now, to renounce their faith when threatened would have been easy, a no-brainer. And we would expect it if they knew it was a lie. And one without conviction might deny the resurrection to save his, or own, his, his own skin, even if it was true. But no one goes to their death knowing something is a lie. As witnesses to the risen Christ, the disciples had the conviction needed to go to their death without recanting. This proves both that it was true, the resurrection was true, and that their conviction was solid as a rock. They knew where they were going. So if we and our young ever face ridicule, rejection, persecution, or maybe even death, it's happened before, we need to be sure we are committed to something genuine, true, and real. I want to read the larger context of 1 Peter 3 because it is in the context of persecution. Uh, starting in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter, when facing persecution and martyrdom, exhorted believers to be prepared to give reasons for the hope, their hope in Christ, to move from mere belief in the head to conviction in the heart. Believers, older and young, must be grounded in objective and absolute truth, which can only come from the truth giver. Now, we've got negative examples of this. Certainly the 9-11 terrorists are such. They're examples of real conviction. They were so committed that they died killing 3,000 of those they considered infidels. Now, you would never say that they just gave mental assent to their beliefs. They were sold out. Now, we know they were wrong, that what they did we call evil, but here's the question. How do we know they were wrong? They thought they were right. We think we're right. In a postmodern world, we're both right. Because it all depends on your culture. Their culture and their guidebook, this is not all Muslims, but those who follow the Quran, say it is good to kill infidels. Our culture and our guidebook, the Bible says, it is evil. In the real world, both cannot be true, okay? Now, when you have two competing truth claims, one must investigate to determine which matches reality. So first, we and then the younger generations that follow must determine beyond a reasonable doubt that God's word and the claims of, the, of Christ are uniquely, factually and verifiably true, okay? Evidence. Now, am I saying we don't need faith? 
Well, let's take a look at this. In John 14, Jesus says he's going away to prepare a place for his followers, and they know how to get there. Thomas objects and says, they don't know the way. How can they know the way? And Jesus says to him, starting in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By this, Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. Theologian uh, Clark Pennock said that this claim can be tested through examination of the evidences and that the facts backing the claim of Jesus, quote, are the cognitive informational facts upon which all historical, legal, and ordinary decisions are based. It's a pretty broad statement. Continuing in John 14, Philip pleads with Jesus to show them. Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, we all know that every once in a while, there's someone who will believe the gospel by itself because they are ripe for harvest. But others need evidence. Christian parents will often assume the former when really their kids sitting in church are in the latter camp. So I would ask parents, grandparents, what is the downside of giving them the evidence? John 20 records the account of disciples when the disciples tell that same Thomas that Jesus rose from the dead. He demands evidence. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of those nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, Jesus gave Thomas the verification, the evidence he needed. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So yeah, it's better to believe on faith. But the point is that Thomas needed evidence to believe, and he did. That's just the reality of where some people are. Frankly, most people, I think, are there. They need proof. They need verification. They need evidence. Jesus knew that the evidence was needed for many. So John tells us, uh, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, please understand, this is not an either-or situation. It's not either you have faith or you need evidence, or it's not if you need evidence, you must not have faith. Jesus invited Thomas to have faith by the evidence. He was not offering blind faith as the cult leaders do. He was calling all to a reasoned and informed faith supported by evidence. 
But after all the evidence in the world, you still need faith. Uh, this also does not mean that if we have faith, genuine faith, we won't have doubts. A father in Mark 9 brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus to be healed. The father pleads, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He was essentially saying, I do believe, but help me with my doubts. Strong believers sometimes will have doubts. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. J the B saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus, and he said, This is the Son of God. However, when J the B was in prison, facing death, he had doubts. So he sent his followers to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? How did Jesus answer that? He said, go and tell John. What you hear and see sounds like evidence. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus used evidence to buttress John's objective belief in the reality of his deity and reassure him before his beheading. Trials and stresses in life at times will bring doubts or questions. Evidence is helpful not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer as well. It is evidence that anchors our faith in the objective truth. It confirms that what we believe is actually true especially when doubts arise. J.P. Moreland defines faith as, quote, a trust in what we have reason to believe is true. Uh, in, in the uh, apologetics and evangelism class that Christy and I facilitate, we've emphasized that the evidence for the existence of God and the reliability of the, of the Bible is beyond all beyond reasonable doubt, all reasonable doubt. That's the highest standard in any court of law. You have to prove that somebody's guilty beyond reasonable doubt. That's not all doubt. That's just reasonable doubt. So you still need faith. Yeah, earlier in John, when we referred to John 14, Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe, because what you have seen me do he was inviting disciples to believe, not just because of the evidences, but believe in, have faith in a person. So if you recall from a previous message, McDowell disclosed that church kids around the turn of the century uh, did not have a solid grasp on how their belief in Christ and the Bible related to their everyday lives. Three quarters of those surveyed, these are church kids, struggled with the meaning of their lives, even though they knew intellectually that Christ brought eternal life and, and, and a changed present life. Some of those young people, since the beginning of the millennium, have since figured it out. Some have not. So what gives us confidence that their kids 
Today's teens have a more clear picture than their parents did as teens. Short of this is that parents and grandparents today need to first be faithful themselves, have genuine convictions over God's truth as revealed in His Word, especially when that truth conflicts with the message of the culture which is today often. Second, to be effective, we must be living examples to the younger generations of the relational meaning of who Christ is and how only He can meet our deepest relational needs with family, with friends, and with the Father. Now, we've been focusing here on the word conviction. We've already noted that people can have genuine conviction but be genuinely wrong. Some examples include Darwin and the modernist, which gave rise to the eugenicists and the Nazis. Uh, communist dictators and regimes which slaughtered millions. The followers of the Jim Jones cult in the 70s that committed mass suicide. Certainly the 9-11 terrorist attackers. All held really strong convictions and were really wrong without debate. So let's take a look at what an beliefs untethered to God's truth can, where it can take us today. Some people today have pretty strong feelings and they might call them convictions, which are based upon their feelings and their subjective sense of fairness, okay? And I think this is the case with most people who have uh, the other view of same-sex relations. The rationalization is they were born this way, God made them this way so that it's wrong or cruel for us to call their behavior wrong. Now, that statement is wrong on so many levels, certainly morally, but scientifically, as there is no gay gene. However, by starting with the false premise of lack of choice, they were born that way, you can see at least logically how they got to their conclusion. Now, there's been a paradigm shift. We are told that you don't need to be born a certain way. You can choose to go against biblical morality, science, and even logic, and it's a-okay. For example, if you've got a Y chromosome and male parts, you can still choose to be a female. In fact, as such, you have the right to beat up on girls in sports. Fallon Fox married and fathered a child and served in the military, but then he chose to consider himself a woman and eventually entered the sport of women's mixed martial arts. And I'm not familiar with this, but I think that's the thing where anything goes, you know, boxing, wrestling, all that sort of thing. Anything goes in mixed martial arts. So in 2014, uh, Fallon fractured the skull of a woman in less than two and a half minutes of their MMA fight. The real woman in that fight later said that she had never felt the strength from an opponent, an opponent that she felt in that fight. Quote, I am an abnormally strong woman in my own right, but I have never been so dominated in my life. Yet, just two weeks ago, the LGBTQ opponents to a Kansas bill to prohibit so-called transgendered persons born as male from competing as women, they called, they said that that bill would, quote, lead 
to bullying. Okay? Now, let's examine this. It is acceptable for a biological male to bully, beat out, as in win, or even beat up females on the field, mat, canvas, or court. But far worse that those same males would be called a name by some immature classmate. Far worse. We can't have that. Now, I have said that this defies logic. And you may ask, how? How? Well, there are some very, very basic rules or laws of logic. And they are so basic, so self-evident, that you and I take them for granted. In, if you've studied logic, you know that they use letters to, to simplify laws. So let's go through this. The, the, the first law is the law of identity. And we're going to use P as a proposition. A proposition is a truth claim. It may or may not be true, but one says it's true. So in our first example here, I'm going to say, I am in this room. And so when I say, I am in this room, that means, according to the law of identity, that I'm really in this room. Am I going too fast? <laughs> OK? I said, these were basic. The, law, the second law, the law of non-contradiction, says uh, P is not non-P. So I am, in, I am in this room, and I am not in this room cannot both be true. Okay? The third law is the law of the excluded middle, which says it's either P or non-P. So I'm either in this room or I'm not in this room, and there's nothing in between, in the middle. Okay? So let's take this for a test drive. P is I am a man. The first law of identity says that I am a man means I'm really a man. Okay? Second law of non-contradiction says, I am a man and I am not a man cannot both be true in the same sense. Let me qualify. It might be true that I am a biological man, but I am not a real man because I'm a coward or I don't fulfill my responsibilities. But that's in a different sense. It cannot be true that I am a biological man and not a biological man at the same time. The third law of the excluded middle says, I am a man or I'm not a man, and there are no options in between. One or the other is true, okay? Now, I know you're, you're, you're dazzled at my brilliance. No, you're not. You're saying, well, duh. But that just helps. This was intuitive. You all knew these things, but we used these laws, which I didn't even know they were laws until I studied this, we, the, we use these laws to make sense out of our world. If these things aren't true, nothing makes sense. Okay? This is the very, very basic thing I'm trying to get across. That somebody who is born a male and then decides to, uh, to uh, be a female, not only violates God's law, he created them male and female, but also science. You either got two X's or you got an X and a Y chromosome. And there are, I heard yesterday a doctor uh, explained that there are 6,500 different uh, genetic differences uh, between men and women, and uh, surgery and drugs do not change them. But finally, as you can see, this worldview violates the basic laws of logic. So, where are we today? 
with the denial of the laws of God, of science, and logic, we are fastly approaching a postmodern culture. There is no absolute truth. Now, if this was just an intellectual debate, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. The, the debate could be had and reason could win out. But now we can't even get into a debate. To even question that choice means you are a bigot and a trans hater. And when you throw in critical theory and intersectionality, uh, to question one's choice, you are also an oppressive, fetus-loving, woman-hating, homophobic, racist Neanderthal. <laughs> Did you know that about yourself? Okay. So the point here is that the environment that McDowell surveyed 20 years ago was not nearly as hostile to Christian beliefs as the one facing teens today. So, what to do? Well, we should not wring our hands over the culture. President Reagan, um, when facing a growing federal deficit and debt, turnovers in his grave if he knew what was going on right now, but he said this, calling for restraint. If not us, who? If not now, when? Is it not time for parents, grandparents, and older believers to get serious about passing on real conviction? Now, what is, what am I talking about when I talk about conviction for a Christian? It's being so convinced that Christ and his word are both objectively true and relationally meaningful that you act on your beliefs regardless of the consequences, come what may. Now, notice uh, another factor in there that we've talked about before and we'll talk about again. Earlier we said that understanding biblical truth was essential but not sufficient in an openly hostile culture. For truth to stick with the younger generation, there must be relationship that sinks into the heart, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 6. It must be the hope within, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3. By relationally meaningful, we need primarily that believers must grasp that who Christ really is, their Savior who had to die for their very real sins so that it makes sense to believe and follow him. And this is a 360-degree concept. It involves relating to the world, to family, to friends, but also it encompasses relating to the person of Christ. So our goal in this series is to give solid reasons to believe and to explore how to live out those beliefs in relationship with others. McDowell calls this a relational apologetic. So today I've tried to explain how important genuine conviction is in our present culture. That culture does not control us, it does not control our children, but it nudges us through temptation and intimidation towards silence and conformance by individuals and meaningless ritual and maybe just attendance in church. One without conviction can sit in a church 
for their whole lives and never be a part of the church, the body of Christ. Maybe at best they're a lukewarm believer. So the example of mature believers in the first chair who pass on God's truth through relationship is vital to our future leaders in the culture and within the church. So, Lord willing, as we go forward in this series, we can all learn to better provide a lamp for God's path to the young, answering the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What guides me? Where am I going? So as the worship team comes up, uh, if uh, you can put up the, uh, the passage back there. Yeah, we're going to read out of uh, Psalm 119 uh, together. Go ahead and stand. Okay. All right. Let's, let's read together the holy word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn, and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, Lord, according to your word. Be pleased to accept the voluntary offerings of my mouth, Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have set a trap for me, Yet I have not wanted from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the judge of my heart, and I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end.